0: A of prayer. Father, we just give thanks and praise to you for this day, this opportunity, Lord. We just thank you so much uh, for giving us this great gift that you have in your word. Pray, Lord, as we look at it tonight, that you administer our hearts and our souls. Lord, we just love you so much and we think about so many answered prayers of late, Lord, that you have been so good to us and uh, to those who are a part of our fellowship. And we just want to give praise to you tonight for all your answered prayers. Indeed, there are many. Lord, we pray now that you would bless the remainder of our time together, and we ask it in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. All right, if you would, turn in your Bibles with me to uh, Galatians chapter 4. We're going to pick up our text tonight in verse 21, but uh, just by way of introduction, I want to go over a couple of uh, verses that we've already looked at. A little bit in particular, uh, Paul is making his defense uh, against the Judaizers, the ones who are trying to bring these people under the bondage of the law. And he has been using the example of, the, of a child. And as he's grown up, he's underneath that that tutor, that, that individual that watches over him. But then when he becomes... Uh, an adult. He is an heir, a full heir uh, to the things of his father. And Paul has been telling them that that they, because of Jesus Christ, they are sons of God. They have been adopted by God. In verse 6 he says, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father therefore you are no longer a slave but a son and if a son then an heir of God through Christ you remember he uses that example that until a a child becomes recognized as a man he is equal to that of the slave he doesn't have the full rights as a son yet but with God adopting us we are then joint heirs with Christ in all that he has and so Um, in verse 10, he says, he questions them about this idea about going into the law and wanting to adopt that into their lives. When he says, you observe days and months and seasons and years, and I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. So Paul is trying to plead this case here that is, you know, he taught them better than this. And he's saying, you know, I hope I didn't waste my time that the things that I taught you stick with you, that you understand that there is no redemption through the law, uh, that it will not bring spirituality. In actuality, it'll bring self-righteousness. He reminded them in verse 12 when he said, Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. Paul was once one who trusted in the law for his righteousness and then he says but i have become like you and in that i'm no longer trusting in the law And the law never could do that, he explains to us. Uh, And so therefore, uh, you know, I want you to understand that I want you to be like me and that I have become like you, then being set free from that law. In Verse 13, For you know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at at the first, and my trial which was in my flesh you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then? was the blessing you enjoyed, for I bear you witness that if possible you would have plucked your own eyes out and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Isn't it interesting how that is so often true? When you have someone that you know, that you love, that's going off into some false doctrine or going off in a way that they should not, and especially in this particular area where Paul is dealing with the aspect of obtaining righteousness through obedience uh, to the law uh, of God and trying to bring them back towards grace and to walk in the fullness of grace and not trusting in the law at all and how oftentimes people get angry and upset when you give them the truth of God's word. Um, And certainly uh, this is one of my favorite verses in Galatians uh, because how often you know have I seen that happen if not in my own life certainly in other people's lives. Verse 17 they zealously court you but for no good. Yes they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. But it is is good to be zealous in good things always, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. So Paul, reaching out to them with that, expression of love and a desire to do what is best for them and to minister to them and feeling that if he was there that it would come across so much better and and certainly there's something to be said for that things are typically not always but most of the time always better done in person than they are in any other means because the emotion uh, comes through uh, whether it's good emotion or bad emotion it still comes through at least it's the truth right So then we get to verse 21 he says tell me you who desire to be under the law do you not hear the law so the galatians had not yet submitted to bondage of the law but they desired to paul desperately wanted to stop them and to turn them back to a life under grace as a transition to what would immediately follow He challenged the Galatians to be aware of or to understand what the law really said. There are many advantages to being under the law as your principle of relating to God. First, you always have the outward certainty of a list of rules to keep. Second, you can uh, compliment yourself because you keep the rules better than others do. Finally, you can take the credit for your own salvation because you earned it by keeping that list of rules. That would be the advantages to the law. All that being false, of course, you can't do any of that. None of that would be true. Under the law, it is what you do for God that makes you right before him. Under the grace of God, it is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ that makes us right before him. Under the law, the focus is on my performance. Under the grace of God, the focus is on who Jesus is and what he has done. Under the law, we find fig leaves to cover our nakedness. You know, that's the idea that it's our own attempts to produce righteousness in our life and the the figure uh, the figurative language there of the fig tree is that that's what adam and eve tried to cover themselves up to cover their sin in the garden that when they were there and god said where are you (laughs) god found them covered in fig leaves which i always find quite amusing if you've ever been around fig leaves you know that they have a uh, a real sticky kind of fuzz on them and stuff very irritating to the skin as a matter of fact, if you pick figs and you don't put on gloves and long sleeves, you end up becoming very itchy and nasty. So uh, I think that speaks volumes to our attempts in order to cover ourselves up and to bring about our own righteousness through our obedience rather than through the grace of God. Paul sensed that he had not made his point. Uh, yet. So he now approached the matter with another illustration from the Old Testament. He explains his point from the story of Abraham, Hagar, and Sarah in Genesis chapter 16, without a lot of detail from the story. He assumes that they knew the story, and and granted, we probably all do. You know, it's the story of of uh, Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, and how Abraham and Sarah were not be, were not able to conceive children. Sarah was not able to conceive. Uh, God had come to Abraham, told him that he was going to have a child. Uh, that was going to be the heir. And Sarah and Abraham got tired of waiting on God and decided that the best bet would be for Abraham to take Hagar and have a relationship with her, uh, of course, we know that uh, that wasn't too good of an idea, but yet they thought it was. And sure enough, uh, we find that it wasn't Abraham's problem with with not being able to produce. It was Sarah. Uh, but after uh, Ishmael was born, uh, then some time later, the Lord came to Abraham and said that he was going to have a son. of promised, and that was going to be through his wife Sarah. She laughed. Denied it, but it was true. She did, and so God said, uh, "Okay. So what's going to happen? You're going to conceive. You're going to have a son, and you're going to name. You're going to name your son laughter. That's what Issach means. And so, uh, after I, um, Isaac is born, Sarah becomes jealous over Hagar and Ishmael, and at the time of of um, Isaac's weaning. Uh, Ishmael makes fun of Isaac and so Sarah says that's it they got to go and so they end up kicking out Ishmael and Hagar uh, and Isaac becomes the son of promise. And There's a type that Paul is going to use in that illustration of the law and the spirit really of faith. And he's going to use those as one being the son of promise, the other one being a son of the flesh and of works. And so he's going to refer to that. And that it is important that Paul would refer back to the scriptures again and again. The legalists among the Galatians presented themselves as the back to the Bible bunch. Yet, Paul will show that they were not handling the Old Testament scriptures correctly. Excuse me, correctly. And he will show that a true understanding of the law of Moses will support the true gospel which he preaches. You remember, of course, at the very beginning of the book, Paul had warned them that if anyone comes and preaches to them any other gospel than the one that he had preached to them, not that it it was Paul's gospel, it wasn't Paul's gospel, it was God's gospel. If anybody preaches to you any other gospel, any other means by which you can come into a relationship with God, then let them be a curse because it's a false gospel. And certainly that's what the Judaizers were doing. They were saying that in addition to Christ was the keeping of the law, that you had to keep the Sabbaths, the moons, and, and the law. And of course, uh, Paul was making sure that they understood that to go back to that would be putting yourself into bondage. And he uses the whole thing with Abraham Uh, Hagar and Sarah, to illustrate his point. In verse 22, it says, For it was written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. The first contrast that Paul draws between real Christianity and legalism is the contrast between freedom and slavery. One son of Abraham was born by a free woman, and one was born by a bondwoman. The real Christian life is marked by freedom. Feeling the need to further emphasize the ridiculous idea of going uh, going to a place of trusting the law, he points them to the scriptures again. The legalists who troubled the Galatians protested that they were children of Abraham and therefore blessed. Paul will admit that they are children of Abraham, but they forget that Abraham had two sons. And they were the sons of Ishmael, the uh, the bondwoman. In their culture, it you know, when a child was born to a bondwoman, he was automatically a slave. He wasn't born a freeman because of the fact uh, that he was born to a mother who was a slave. So he indeed is, was a slave. And this is what Paul is going to illustrate, is that through... Ishmael, the son of the flesh, they were born into that slavery, bondage to the law, where Isaac was born by the free woman, which was Sarah, and born into faith. In verse 23, he says, But who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through the promise? So the second contrast concerned the manner in which the sons were conceived. Ishmael was born in an ordinary way, that is, in the course of nature and requiring no miracle and no promise of God. Ishmael was Abraham's son, but he was a son according to the flesh and unbelief and trying to make your own way before God. Remember what I had said. They had grown weary of waiting on God, thinking that they had to find a way in order to fulfill the promise that God had made to them. And so they cho- chose to do something that was out of the will of God and truly of the flesh in that, uh, that Abraham would marry Hagar. Or not marry Hagar, but would take Hagar unto himself and that she would become pregnant and bear a son. And that, that's how they felt that they would help God along that they would help God fulfill what he wanted done in their lives. How often do we do that with God, ourselves? How often do we think that we need, that God needs our help in order to accomplish what he wants to accomplish in our lives? God doesn't need our help at all. He wants our cooperation. He doesn't even need that. He's God. He can do whatever he wants to. But he chooses to work in cooperation with us, our, our cooperation with him, in order to accomplish his will and to do what he wants done. And thank God that he has his way often, more often than not, with those who love him and, and call on his name. But here we see with them, the, the illustration becomes very clear that Ishmael was that work of the flesh, and they were trying to help God, and so therefore he was that, that bondman. It often doesn't look like it, but legalism is living according to the flesh. It denies God's promise and tries to make our own way to God through the law. This is living like a descendant of Abraham, but it is living like Ishmael and not like Isaac. Isaac on the other hand was born as a result of a promise Abraham and Sarah were beyond the age of childbearing but God miraculously fulfilled his promise in bringing life out of the deadness of Sarah's womb so here you remember the story Abraham's 90 I think Sarah's 80 uh, when all this is taking place and it's well beyond childbearing years, even for them in their days, even though they were living to a hundred and something plus years, that childbearing years were not carried all the way through in it, just like it doesn't in our lives too. It was miraculous. And of course, when you start looking at it, you see the, the, the type, you know, that, that with Christ's birth and Ishmael, or in Isaac's birth, both of them, you know, the sons of promise both of them miraculously both of them by faith and trust lead to salvation and certainly we see this here so the second contrast that paul draws between christianity and legalism is the contrast between a work done by god's promised miracle and the work done by the flesh and the real christian life is connected to god's promised miracle and not the flesh I'm I'm sure I'm not getting any pushback or arguments about this from from you guys as we're talking about these things. This is kind of elementary, to be honest with you, as a Christian. But let me remind you how easy it is to lose sight of trying to help God do the things that He wants to do. Oftentimes, we don't trust the Lord. We figure that, you know, if I have a need, That I have to do something or else it's just going to go unattended. Where oftentimes if we just wait on the Lord, he demonstrates himself to be faithful and true. And he satisfies that need, whatever it may be, no matter what it is. And there are things that come along in our life that, that put that to the test, right? It's easy to say, I trust the Lord to provide for my needs when I have a check coming in each week to pay my bills. But really, God's promise is that when that's not coming in each week, that He's still going to pay your bills, that He's going to take care of it. Yeah, that's a that's a difficult thing for us to, to grasp and to hold on to. I, I marvel how easy it was when I was young in the faith. I mean, just one thing after another, something would happened in my life, and every time I turned around God was providing for me and doing it. And then as I got older and I became more sufficient and, you know, I developed a career and all these kinds of things in my life, all of a sudden it wasn't God that was providing for me anymore. It was me. And so when I thought there was some kind of threat that I was going to lose that, I would begin to panic, oh no, what am I going to do? Lord, I got a wife. I got two kids to support. What am I going to do? I got to go out and do something. I know what I'll do. I'll go back to fishing. You know what happened, right, with Peter? When the Lord, you know, after he had uh, been crucified and resurrected and everything, and then Peter tells all the guys, that's it. I'm going back to fishing. He didn't think anything was going to happen, so he just took off and he went back to Galilee. He went back to the work of his flesh went back to what he knew. You know what I knew? Driving truck. That was always my ace. As a matter of fact, I still have a commercial license in my pocket right now. And, and that's because it's my ace in the hole. That if something happens, I know I can always get a job driving truck, right? I'm not so sure anymore. I've been thinking about this as my license comes due next year. Is it this year, 23? And I have to determine whether or not I'm going to spend $80 to get a driver's license. Because that's what I have to do. That's what I have to pay for a commercial license. Will I really ever? But man, I'm telling you, this is like this is like cutting off my little finger or something. It's the, the idea. And, and I think about this, about how, how it is I say that I love God. I believe in God. I trust God. I know that God's going to provide for my needs. But then I hang on to things that I say, well, just in case, just in case, I may need to go back fishing again. Instead of just letting it all go and saying, you know what? I just have to trust the Lord. So pray for me. I'm, I'm searching the Lord for that. I really am. Lord, what do you want me to do? Uh, you know, I always, I, I, never mind. I, I have plenty of ways to rationalize it all. And it's not even for the fact of taking care of my needs. It's the idea that I would like to drive a truck again sometime and if i have a license i could you know and if even it's just to move a piece of equipment from here to there or whatever right you understand what i'm saying i don't know but the truth is it's easy to say that we trust the lord when everything is set in our life when we have it all and in our country, that's not uncommon at all, that you know, we, we are very comfortable people. I'm not saying that's wrong. Don't get, me, don't get me wrong about that. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying that it really makes it difficult to be that one that really trusts God because I'm trusting in everything else that I have. And sure enough, if it's important enough to the Lord, he'll remove it out of my life and bring me to that point to where I must exercise that faith and trust Um, that God wants to happen in my life. And so Paul, he contrasts between the promised miracle and the flesh. And that true Christian life is connected to God's promised miracle and not the flesh. We want to never lose sight of that. Even as comfortable as we may be, I think understanding and giving thanks to God and realizing that at any moment that can all come crashing, but God's faithfulness will never come crashing. It'll always be there. In order to emphasize the contrast between the law and grace, Paul used these historical events as an allegory. That is, he treated those two mothers figuratively. He did not in any sense deny the literal meaning of the story of Abraham. But he declared that the story, especially the matters of relating to the conception of the two sons, had an additional meaning. Thus, he compared the narrative to the conflict between Judaism and Christianity. This allegorizing is a far cry from the practice of allegorical interpretation followed by such teachers as Origen, Augustine, and many others down through the ages and into the present day, in which the, which the historical facts are relegated to a lower, less significant level, and fanciful, hidden meanings unrelated to the text are considered vastly more important. There are many false doctrines that have ensued because of that kind of interpretation of the scriptures, and that's why there <laughs> there are some people that, uh, if you were to read their commentaries on the book of Revelation, you would you would wonder if they really even knew the Lord. They allegorize it to the point to where it has no literal meaning whatsoever, even to some who don't even believe that it's an actual seven-year period time period, and they allegorize it. Verse 24, which things are symbolic, for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. In the Bible, a covenant is a contract that sets the rules for our relationship with God. Paul brought it right down to the issues confronting the Galatian Christians here. The legalists wanted them to relate to God under one set of rules, and Paul wanted them to relate to God under the rules presented by the gospel. First, Paul points to two covenants. One, the Mosaic, had its origin on Mount Sinai, where Moses received the law. Those under this legal covenant were slaves. As Hagar brought forth a slave, so does the law. At this point, we are expected to understand and supply that definite reference to the Abrahamic covenant, a gracious system represented by Sarah through which its messianic promise brought forth children who are free. And so Paul gives the contrast there, Mount Sinai, which represents the law and the bondage, and then the one that is given to Sarah, which represents freedom. In verse 25. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem which now is and is in bondage with her children. This covenant corresponds to Jerusalem uh, which is which now is and that is the earthly Jerusalem which was the capital of religious Judaism. So this was the way most Jewish people in Paul's day tried to be right with God, by trusting in their ability to please God by keeping the law. There were many uh, in Jesus' day that realized that that is impossible. Of course, we take note of Nicodemus, who uh, understood that quite clearly. He realized that he was not able to keep the law. How can, you know, how can I enter into the kingdom? Well, you must be born again. Uh, You know, you must be born of the spirit and of the flesh. So you're born physically, but then you must be reborn by the spirit. And Nicodemus had this, this within him, he understood that he wasn't able to do good enough in order to be able to make it. He realized his shortcomings. And so he questions. Christ about that. And so God gives, or Jesus gives him the answer as what he must do. But then in verse 26 it says, but the Jer- Jerusalem above is free which is the mother of us all. So the third contrast Paul draws between Christianity and legalism is the contrast between heaven and earth. Real Christianity comes from heaven and not from earth. Paul pointed to two Jerusalems. Hagar also stood for the first century city of Jerusalem, a city enslaved to Rome and in slavery to the law. Sarah, on the other hand, corresponded to the Jerusalem above, the mother of all the children of Greece. This heavenly city, which one day will come to earth, according to Revelation 21.2, is now the city of the living God, according to Hebrews twelve twenty-two, The home of departed believers of all ages, except for those who do not know Christ. It's only to those who trust in that covenant between us and Christ, forgiveness by grace through faith and that alone. Everyone who trusts in the law and trusts in their flesh find themselves in a place of wanting, uh, a place of torment until that day in which uh, they'll come before the white throne judgment of God. In verse 27, it says, "'For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor.' For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. So, two covenants, the bondage of the law and the freedom of grace. The quotation here is from Isaiah 54, 1. And it prophesied prophesied the changing fortunes of Israel, which Paul applied to Sarah's history. Israel, before her Babylonian captivity, was likened to a woman with a husband. The barren woman was Israel in captivity. The woman bearing more children may have pictured Israel restored to the land after the exile, but more particularly, it portrays her millennial blessings. Paul applied this passage, and he did not claim it was fulfilled in this context to Sarah, who though previously barren was later blessed with a child and who would ultimately enjoy a greater progeny than Hagar and uh, and that's true even to this day it is interesting because of that that whole scenario between Sarah, Abraham, and Hagar we have a scenario that goes on in the world today to where there's still this embattlement that takes place between Ishmael and Isaac. Uh, A fight that has gone on for generations and generations. And here we see uh, that it's because one was in the flesh, a work of the flesh, the other one was the work of the promise or the spirit if you will. And so there's a greater promise that is fulfilled through, the, uh, through Sarah because it's not only the children of Israel that came to faith, but it's also all of us, uh, all of us Gentiles that have come to faith in Christ. We are considered that, that offspring of Abraham, sons of adoption uh, unto God. And so we become a part of that number of God's work within the world. Um, In verse 28 it says now we brethren as isaac was are children of the promise so in implying the truth from the biblical illustration paul made three comparisons first paul compared the birth of isaac to that of christians as isaac experienced a supernatural birth and was a child by the means of promise So each believer experiences a supernatural birth, and we see that according to John 3, 3 and 5, and is a recipient of the promise of salvation. So uh, in Galatians 3, 9, and also 22 and 29, we have that promise of salvation through Christ. And as children of promise, uh, Christians are a distinct category in a distinct category, and should not live as children of bondage. So, hence, you have that, that exhortation from Paul that, we, that they would not go back to or go to the law to try to find a continuing on of their relationship with Christ. We remember in the beginning of the book, Paul says, Having begun in the Spirit, will you now continue in the flesh? And so Paul is trying to make sure that they understand that through these examples, uh, the Old Testament examples that we have, that the futility of trying to go to the law. The Judaizers were very convincing. And the people that were being talked to were being persuaded, or at least almost persuaded, to going back to that form, that system of legalism, trying to obtain righteousness now, I have to admit, the flesh relishes in that kind of thing. We like it when we feel that we are in some way justified by the things that we do in our relationship with God. We do. And, and, and it's, a, it's one of those things that's kind of difficult because, hey, to be honest with you, I, am, I feel good when I'm obedient to God. I feel good about that. Because the opposite is that when I'm not being obedient to God, I feel awful bad, because I know I'm doing what's wrong. The difference is, is that I'm not hoping to obtain any more righteousness from God by being good. It's because of what He has declared me to be as righteous, in that I have that relationship with Him now, that I am glad to obey God because I belong to Him. And it's not so that I can become more righteous, but that I can do His will because he says that if we really are his friends, that we're going to obey his commandments. If we are his children, we're going to obey him. And so it becomes that natural response to the grace and the mercy and the blessings of God in our life. It's when we, when we start trying to think that I'm better than others because I do more. And that it, actually you can go the opposite of that. You can think you're worse than others because you do less. When in reality, it shows the, the, the frailty and, the, and the, uh, the shallowness of relationship with Christ in either one of those two ideas. Because I find my value and my worth in Christ and Him alone and in nothing else. And so I'm not trying to be better so that I can impress Him or anybody else. But the danger, of course, is that when we do do well, that we start thinking ourselves to be better than others when we're not. Verse 29, "'But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now.' So secondly, the apostle compared Ishmael's persecution of Isaac to the false teacher's opposition to believers. Abraham celebrated the weaning of Isaac with a banquet, and there was no specific mention of Ishmael persecuting Isaac, uh, though Genesis 21.9 says that Ishmael, Ishmael did mock Isaac. Paul may have been referring to this mocking. He may be recalling a Jewish tradition, or he may be adding something by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we did not know before. This we know, it says, that according to the flesh that he persecuted him. And certainly, uh, I think we find that happens even still today, not only between Jews and uh, Arabs, but also within the church as well. Those who are tend to be legalistic Uh, have a tendency to persecute those who are not of that same ilk that they are. Boyce had this to say about this. He said, The persecution Christians face will not always be by the world, but also and indeed more often by their half-brothers, the unbelieving but religious people in the nominal church. This is the lesson of history. Today, the greatest enemies of the believing church are found among the members of the unbelieving church, and uh, the greatest opposition emanating from pulpits and church heresies. And uh, I would have to concur with that. That early animosity has been perpetuated in the two peoples which descended from the two sons of Abraham and is seen in the current Arab-Israeli tensions. Paul uh, likened the Judaizers to Ishmael as those who were born out of legalistic self-effort. He charged that they continued to persecute the true believers who were born by the power of the Spirit. With a few exceptions, Paul's persecution came from the Jews, the people in bondage to the laws. Paul had made it clear earlier, I'd read it in the scripture in the passage uh, tonight, that they did this for their own gain. Uh, they did this because it made them feel better about themselves. Uh, they they uh, they proselytized the church, not the unsaved. And there are people that do that today, that go about in the church trying to convince them of their doctrines, their theologies, and they don't go outside of that because they They're what I call cherry pickers. They go along and they pick the fruit that's right there, easy to obtain. They don't go out into the world to the lost to convince the lost about their sinful, uh, their sinful end, and that they will experience eternal damnation. But they try to pull off from the church those that they feel are in not the right theology. So we have it, even still today, that goes on. And I consider them to be somewhat like the Judaizers as well. Even more so like Gnostics, believing that they have a special knowledge. And if you don't believe the way that they do, then you just don't really know Christ. Verse 30, he says, Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir, with the son of the free woman. So thirdly, Paul compared the action of Abraham to the obligation of the Christians. When Sarah observed Ishmael mocking Isaac, she asked Abraham to expel the slave woman and her son, lest Ishmael become a joint heir with Isaac. And God granted Sarah's request. And this reminded the Galatians that... Law observance brought no inheritance in the family of God, and it also charged them to excommunicate the Judaizers and those who accepted their false doctrines. A fundamental incompatibility remains between law and grace, between a religion based on works and a religion based on faith. It'll it'll never change. Sarah could live with Hagar, and Ishmael until the son of promise was born. Once Isaac was born, then Hagar and Ishmael had to go. In that same way, a person could relate to the law one way before the promise of the gospel was made clear in Jesus Christ. But now that it has been made clear, there is nothing to do but to cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. It's told us here. Ishmael was not necessarily a bad man or a cursed man. He wasn't. As a matter of fact, God made promises to Ishmael. He told Hagar that, that he was gonna, that God said he was gonna bless Ishmael and that he too would become a large nation. And certainly that happened. But neither was he blessed with that promise of inheriting a glorious covenant of God given to Abraham and his descendants the promise of course with Abraham was the messianic promise that the messiah would come uh, through him and uh, that there, that his descendants would be as numerous as the sands of the sea the stars of the sky although uh, Ishmael had the promise of many uh, Abraham's blessing went far beyond what his would, and that was uh, the inheritance of one heir Isaac the son of the free woman, and so just as it was that the illustration is there to kick out the free woman or the bond woman, Paul is telling him, "Hey, get rid of the Judaizers, kick them out. Don't go back to the law. Remain free." Uh, you know, he's telling them that that what they need is to abandon any ideas that they might have in thinking this way. And remember, this is this is not to one particular troop. Uh, uh, excuse me, church. This is to a group of churches in an area of Galatia. And so it wasn't just one small little church that he was having to deal with. It was the whole region that they were having uh, so much success. And uh, thank God uh, for that because, um, you know, we we have what we have today that we know that, that we need to Uh, not go into that system to try to obtain our righteousness as well. So in verse 31, it says, So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So in conclusion, Paul affirmed that he and the Galatian believers were not children of the slave woman who was driven away and was denied a share in the inheritance. Rather, all believers are children of the free woman heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ, according to Romans 8.17. For Paul, one of the greatest issues in this was freedom. He knew the bondage of trying to earn his own way before God. Because he lived that way for decades, now he knew the freedom of living as a son of God, free in Christ Jesus. I have to say, one of the things that I enjoy about a relationship with God is the freedom that we have. The freedom to just relax and enjoy life and live. You know, that I don't have to, you know, know, even if I wasn't a pastor, I would be here on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights and all the other nights that things are going on because I love fellowshipping with God's people. I love worshiping God. I don't do it out of duty or because I have to. I do it because I love to. Been that way since I got saved. Nobody had to tell me that when the doors were open you should be at the church. I wanted to be at the church. So I was. Nobody ever had to tell me. And I love that freedom. I don't have to observe the Sabbath. I don't have to observe the law. I don't have to observe the feast and the moons. Now I love playing with those things, right? I love doing a Christian Seder, right? That's fun because that's what it is. It's not a religious observance of the law at all. It is looking at what was being said in the Old Testament and how it pointed to what was going to happen in the New Testament on the day when the Lord gathered his disciples together and he gave to them that glorious institution of the table where we get to come and to celebrate the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of that free gifts that God gives to us that we can enjoy, not because we have to, but because we get to experience it. And I, I love that about freedom. And I've got to tell you, if, if that relationship like that was not there with God, because I know me as I am, I would not worship God. If I had to, I would not. Because I know how I am. Remember, I've told you before, I am the don't, t- don't step on the grass guy that's got to step on the grass. Don't touch the wet paint. I've got to touch the wet paint because that is my nature. That's who I am. Because God has given me this glorious freedom to be able just to worship him and to enjoy it. Just like I enjoyed the relationship with my natural father. I enjoyed when my dad was alive. and I know many of you in this room, same feeling as well. And it wasn't a strain. You didn't have a relationship with your dad because you had to because you were forced to. it. You were a son. You didn't have a choice in the matter. You no, know, you could be like me when I was, let's see, the first time I ran away, I was 13, right? You know, you can be a knucklehead like that. Or you can enjoy, you know, having a relationship with the person that, that God has put in your life. It's the same thing with our relationship with, with God. It's all based upon Freedom not law. Berkeley makes the point that anyone who makes law central in his position of a slave, all his life he is seeking to satisfy the master, the law. Always trying to satisfy the law. But when grace is central, the person has made love his dominant principle, and it will be the power of love and not the constraint of the law that keeps us right, and love is always more powerful than law." You know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they drew attention to themselves by the way they dressed and the things that they did because they wanted to impress everybody. Look at me. Look at me. I am the great law keeper. And Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, he made sure that everybody understood. In what they did outwardly did not make them the great law keeper. What took place within their heart determined whether or not they were the great law keeper. And that's what's sweet about our relationship with God as well, is that, that we, are, we are under that watchful eye. I don't even want to say the scrutiny, because that, that's like uh, you know, somebody that's looking over you all the time to find something wrong. But we're under the watchful eye of God, who's always exer- observing us in our life and our actions to encourage us when we do what is right, to exhort us when we're doing what is wrong. And all of that is based upon that wonderful relationship of father, son, daughter, and the freedom that we have in order to follow Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you. Um, Lord, I just am always overwhelmed when I contemplate the freedom that I have in you, that I get to love you that you have allowed me to be one of your children, that I get to enjoy that kind of relationship as if I was a natural-born son. You've adopted me and you've taken me in, and I am joint heirs with your natural-born son, and that I have all the things that I have need of pertaining to life and godliness because of the knowledge that I have of you. Thank you, Father. Bless us, Lord. Help us to always resist getting caught up in any kind of a works trip, Lord, but to always be experiencing grace, never to take advantage of that and to think that I can live improperly because I'm under grace, but because I'm under grace that I should not. Thank you, Father, for these glorious words. Thank you for your love, your grace, and your mercy toward us. We ask that you would bless us now as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, y'all. Good night.